Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Hello friends, welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Here we are, we've made it to the second half of 2002, the summer before my senior year of high school. As you'll learn in this episode, the triumvirate of The Who, Rolling Stones, and Bob Dylan are still going strong on the charts, but one of those groups will break away from the pack in the next quarter of 2002. Besides that, we got a few kind of fluky number ones by unlikely artists, and a few return ones too. So buckle up, it's gonna be a heck of a toboggan ride, to quote Superintendent Chalmers from The Simpsons. We kick things off with a one-week number one on the week of July 6, 2002. We're going into freewheelin' Bob Dylan territory. It's I Shall Be Free and Talkin' World War III Blues. Here's a bit of the former. Out there painting on the old woodshed when a can of black paint it fell on my head. I went down to scrub and rub, but I had to sit in back of the tub. Cost a quarter. Half price. When my telephone rang, it would not stop this President Kennedy calling me up. He said, my friend Bob, what do we need to make the country grow? I said, my friend John, Bridget Bardo, Anita Ickberg, Sophia Lauren, country will grow. Just a reminder that a lot of the Bob Dylan classics I first heard in the Greatest Hits or Greatest Hits Volume 2 incarnations so that's why you don't see Blowing in the Wind or Don't Think Twice, It's All Right or A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall at number one. You could make the argument that I should have put Masters of War at number one, but that languished at number 10, unfortunately, the same week. At this time, the funny, talking blues side of Bob Dylan appealed to me more. Back in May of that year, I listened to another side of Bob Dylan, and quite a bit of the songs reached the charts, with I Don't Believe You hitting number two behind Los Lobos. At number six on that same week was I Shall Be Free number 10, which in itself is a rewrite of I Shall Be Free, but just super goofy and off the rails. The original I Shall Be Free here I think is a little more coherent of a song. It's humorous in nature, but not quite as goofy, and actually some valid talking points too, disguised as humor. The two verses I included are my favorite ones on the song, and good examples of straightforward humor and somewhat serious statements. The first of these saw Dylan painting on the old woodshed when a can of black paint done fell on his head, and he had to sit on the back of the tub to clean it up. Even at the time, I picked up that that was a reference to African Americans having to sit at the back of the buses during segregated times. And then in sharp contrast, you got the next verse in which good old President Kennedy calls up Bob Dylan, asking for his advice for what would help the country grow. Mr. Dillon recommends three ladies who were known as sex symbols at the time. Sophia Loren, Anita Ekberg, Bridget Bardot. Those will help the country grow. 
it's presumed at the first part of the verse that Kennedy is talking about economic growth, prosperity. But I do believe, and this has been backed up by sources, that Bob Dylan was talking about growing as an erection. <laughs> 1963 Bob Dylan still has time for penis jokes. Hilarious. For years I thought it was just my dirty mind, but I wasn't the only one. When I found out that those two verses were likely what I thought they were, I had to give myself a big old pat on the back. There are other quotable parts of I Shall Be Free, most notably the end where he talks about making love to Elizabeth Taylor and catching hell from Richard Burton, the it couple of the time. A few words about talking World War III blues. It's one of Bob Dylan's surrealistic stories of wandering around town and the stuff that happens to him with lines about meeting a girl, and he wanted to play Adam and Eve with her, but she said, hey, you remember what happened the last time they did it, right? Or calling up the operator just to have a voice to listen to. She said, when you hear the beep, it'll be three o'clock. She said that for over an hour, and I hung up. <laughs> yeah, talking about these tracks makes me want to listen to Free Willin' again, or go on another Bob Dylan-a-thon like I did a couple of years ago. But for now, onward and upward. Next up, with two weeks at number one, it's a swoon-worthy ballad from the 1980s, In Your Eyes by Peter Gabriel. This song is so romantic. I believe this one has a strange story as far as how I first heard about it. This wasn't a song I knew growing up on the radio, or at least I don't think I heard it. It was some game show on, yes you guessed it, VH1. I don't know if it was like a guess the lyrics or guess the song, but I distinctly remember hearing the middle part, and I think the contestant had to finish off with I reach out from the inside. But that was enough for me to want to hear more of that song and really enjoy it. It comes from Peter Gabriel's big commercial breakthrough album, So, in 1986, aka the one with Sledgehammer on it. In Your Eyes was released as a single in between that big blockbuster number one hit and Big Time, both of them super upbeat new wave songs with crazy-ass videos. I don't think there were any dancing chickens present in this video, though. It's just a wonderful love song with world beat rhythms that he carried over from his prior two albums, Peter Gabriel 3 and Security. It has a great build. Starts off with milder verses. He gets so lost sometimes. And then that midsection that I talked about, which is my favorite part of the song, where he says all his instincts, they return. Grand facade will surely burn. 
After that, the chorus is a little bit of a letdown. Minor nitpicking, though. He's still enraptured by his love. He sees the doorway of a thousand churches. And the most hard-hitting line, the resolution to all those fruitless searches. Gotta sum up how it feels when you've found the one. Although I do read that it could be interpreted as romantic love or a love for God, much like a lot of George Harrison's material. The song does vamp on the chorus chords for the end, and then Yusu Undur comes in and sings the rest of the song, bringing even more of a world beat flavor than was there before. In case you're wondering, this was before I knew about Say Anything, and the scene in the movie where John Cusack stands outside his girlfriend's window with a boombox playing this song. With that, I'm guessing the song isn't taking all that serious anymore, as that scene has been parodied ad nauseum. What a shame. I looked at the rest of my number ones, and turns out this was my only Peter Gabriel number one song for the moment. My two favorite Peter Gabriel songs did not hit number one, Shock the Monkey or Steam, which is too bad because Shock the Monkey is a song I love more and more I hear it, and Steam beats Sledgehammer at its own game and then some. But still, not bad for Peter Gabriel's solo number one on my chart. It'll make me swoon each time I listen to it. Finishing up the month of July, it's a surprise hit by a relic of the mid-90s. The band Live spent two weeks at number one with All Over You. So, you think you're a 90s fan? Okay, Yet Kowalczyk, can you handle this? I love the 90s. Yes, sir, we got some alternative, not quite post-grunge, mid-90s rock right here. I'm not quite sure where live fits in nowadays with all those 90s bands. Obviously, they're not in the top tier with Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Soundgarden, etc. But I don't think they're as critically reviled as, say, Candlebox. It's easy to see them as opportunists since Throwing Copper was a huge success in 94 and 95. But that's not quite true. They did have their first album in very late, literally the last day of 1991, Mental Jewelry. It had some success, some singles. But by the time Throwing Copper was released in 94, Kurt Cobain had already committed suicide a couple weeks before the release. So I think the rock music scene was ripe for stuff that might be passed off as grunge, even though it was no longer the first wave of grunge. Live differentiated themselves from the rest by being pretty earnest. Kowalczyk, the lead singer, is almost a little more like Michael Stipe, and that's not just because they're both bald, but a lot of the songs they write are quite personal. 
and quite a lot of their stuff has religious overtones. Not sure if they're professing their faith or rebelling against it. Anyway, their singles were all over the radio, and this was the fourth of the radio hits after selling the drama I Alone and Lightning Crashes. Two of the three have huge nostalgic feel for me. The only one I didn't really care for that much was I Alone. But this song, All Over You, I was not familiar with at the time at all. Maybe by 1995 I wasn't listening to a lot of rock radio anymore or what. But when I found out about this song, it gave me some pretty good memories. If you've heard the other three singles, it's not a whole lot different. It does follow the grunge format of quiet verses booming into loud chorus. And Ed Kowalczyk's voice is a bit of an acquired taste, I'll admit. But it struck me as quite powerful in its own way, without the nostalgia. Hence, here was sitting for two weeks at number one in 2002. Oh, and before I go, you know the part, lay me down, lay me down, always reminded me of Like a Virgin, yeah, you make me feel shiny and new. Live would come back to number one a little less than six years later, but we'll get to that in due time. Taking over at number one from live is an even more unlikely group, doing a really unlikely style if you're familiar with their heyday. With one week at number one, it's the band Ministry with Work for Love. Hear that, kiddies? That's the ministry that Al Jorgensen doesn't want you to know about. <laughs> A little context. If you don't know ministry, they're one of the pioneers of industrial metal from the 80s and 90s. As with many bands of the 90s, I knew of them and their work from my older brothers, especially their 1992 album, Psalm 69, The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs. And with that, this is the first episode of Music Is My Radar that will probably be marked Sexually explicit content. Woohoo! So growing up, I knew them as the band who gave us Jesus Build My Hot Rod, NWO, Just One Fix, and from an earlier album, Stigmata. Very much speedy, thrash inspired, with samples, as I said, industrial metal. Knowing that, you can imagine my shock when I was looking at the now defunct early 80s Song of the Week website and seeing a ministry song from 1983 called Work for Love. And when I read about it and listened to the song, it was nothing at all like the ministry I knew. This here is Happy Happy New Wave, very much like Depeche Mode or maybe New Order. This came from the 1983 album With Sympathy, the first ministry release. And it's not going to surprise you that Al Jorgensen has disowned this era big time. There have been conflicting reports, 
either Jorgensen completely changed his musical direction after the album, or they were forced into a synth-pop image by their label, Arista Records. Yeah, these guys were in Clive Davis's label. It just gets curiouser and curiouser, don't it? Either way, the band jumped ship from Arista a year or so later, and went on to become the ministry that we know. But how about this Work for Love song? It's hilarious. Jorgensen has a false English accent throughout this song and the rest of the album. Another reason why he's embarrassed about this era. And those lyrics. Silly stuff about comparing dating to job applications. You're taking applications for your love. You finally got my resume. Although to tell you the truth, in the Tinder Bumble era, dating did feel a lot like a job interview. So maybe he wasn't too far off. But still, it's a silly conceit. Brought home by that chorus, work for love. I'm guessing it was the shock factor and the laugh factor of a band I knew about growing up having a completely different starting sound, way different from what they became known for. Not a classic, but good for a laugh. After that one week, The Who came by and said, enough with that silly business. Let's throw another great slab from Who's Next at number one for two weeks. Here they are with Bargain. Indeed, we're back in Who's Next territory here. The song from the start has been destined to be in the shadow of other great songs from that album. Baba O'Reilly, Behind Blue Eyes, Won't Get Fooled Again, which those two songs do share some similarities musically, but Bargain is a bit more gentle than those other three, mostly lyrically. It's yet another one of those songs you can interpret as romantic love or religious love, But I think from the very start, I knew that this was a religious song. Pete Townsend, influenced by his teachings of Meher Baba, singing a song about God. How he'd give up everything just for his love. And how he's worth nothing without you being God. And it comes together for the chorus, which must have been like manna from heaven for all those advertising agencies. I call that a bargain, the best I ever had. Come on down to Ronnie Chevrolet. The best deals in the tri-metro area. Come to think of it, it's also musically a little more gentle than those powerhouses. I mean, it's still a heavy guitar sound and lots of drums, but it doesn't quite seem as loud or overbearing. Maybe it's because they use more use of mini silences in each phrase, where you'll hear some hand claps and a tambourine. One of my favorite parts of the song, actually. Still very powerful and dynamic, but played back-to-back with Won't Get Fooled Again, you can tell the difference. And one thing it has more in common with Baba O'Reilly and several other Who songs of the era is Roger Daltrey handles the bulk of the song, 
but there's a quieter part of the song where the band slows things down and Pete Townsend interjects with a couple vocals of his own. Here it's nowhere near as iconic as It's Only Teenage Wasteland on Bob O'Reilly, but all the same it shows that this song really is a prayer at heart and Pete Townsend's just being humble and saying one and one don't make two, one and one make one. Wow, man. Another aspect that differentiates it from other songs on Who's Next is there's no tape loop running throughout the song, like in Baba or Won't Get Fooled Again. Instead, the synthesizers come on the second half of the song, reprising the opening riff, as you will, that was played on a drone. That do, 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 do. The second part, it's played by synthesizers. Almost sounds like something from Steve Miller later on in the decade, Swing Town. I realize that most of my talk about Bargain is comparing it to other Who songs of the era, which is a little bit unfair. Bargain's a great song in its own right, and I don't wish to take away from it. If it's become overshadowed over the years, it's because the album that it's on is so damn classic that not every song can have uber-classic status. I'll mention some other songs from the album that hit my charts around the same time in honorable mentions. But for now, let's move on. To end the summer of 2002 on a happy note, for one week, ending August 31st, 2002, The Cure returned to number one with Friday, I'm in Love. What analysis do I have on this one? It's a fun song and that's it. This was The Cure's second biggest hit, hitting the top 20 in America and the UK in 1992. Their most successful song in the charts for the record was Love Song in 1989. Made number two here in America. How on earth did that happen? I had to dig around to find some info on this song, how Robert Smith wrote it, how it came to be. Evidently, it was one of those ideas that came to him at the pub. And he thought, hey, has anyone done songs about days of the week? Let's give it a try. Maybe he didn't know at the time, but that's got to be a common trope in pop music. Songs that come to mind are Lady Madonna, Friday Night, Arrives Without a Suitcase, or especially the Easy Beats, Friday On My Mind, where each day of the week kind of stinks until Friday when he goes out and sees his girl. Because she's so pretty, as they say in the song. I had wondered if there was pressure on the cure to write a happy hit song, or if Robert Smith was just like, screw you, I'll write the dumbest song possible. But I don't know. Though Smith did say he had problems writing the quote-unquote dumb lyrics, because he had been so conditioned to write all those gloomy, goth songs for many years. Some of the lyrics did strike me as maybe self-parody, especially 
Tuesday, Wednesday, heart attack. So maybe he was taking the piss a little bit. Speaking of the lyrics, I was always struck by that line. Such a gorgeous sight to see you eat in the middle of the night. Guess you could see that as a twist on the obvious lyrics. It was said that it was just based on him running into his wife Mary in the middle of the night in the kitchen. Maybe she was eating something. Don't know what it was, though. But really, what can I say? A silly little pop song with a cute little jangly riff. Maybe I'm supposed to hate it. Maybe I'm supposed to think it's too poppy. But my last offense, check out Mint Car. That was a single of theirs in 1996, which is like a much, much weaker version of Friday I'm in Love. That's a self-parody right there. Listen to that and you might come back to Friday I'm in Love with fresher ears. Or maybe not. Either way, Robert Smith is cool. Just ask the South Park kids. And speaking of old friends, here comes everyone's favorite angry new wave dude, Joe Jackson. He spent number one for one week in September 7th with You can't get what you want, parentheses, till you know what you want. But if you try sometimes, well, my friend, you just might find you'll get what you need. Oh, wait, wrong song. And you'll be shocked to know that that one stalled at number seven on my charts in February 2002 during my immersion of Let It Bleed and Gimme Shelter being at number two for that long. Eh, that's the nature of the charts. And besides, the two songs are apples and oranges. This here song comes from the album after my last number one from Joe Jackson, Steppin' Out. It was from 1984's Body and Soul, in which Joe Jackson switched from that sort of sophisticated pop of night and day to jazz slash salsa. Yeah, this here's jazz pop to the core. And yes, no profound lyrics about seeing her today at the reception, a glass of wine in her hand, etc, etc. But it's just so much fun to listen to, then and now. I mean, the lyrics are quite vague, just a bunch of quasi-self-help stuff. No huge revelations, but it's more about the music to me. The melody is very fast-paced and bounces and jumps around from part to part. My favorite section is in the middle of the verses when the horns go ba-da-dun, ba-da-dun. I always picture the horn section moving around from side to side playing their parts, and it just brings a big smile to my face every time. And one thing I didn't really notice until reading up on it, that's a hell of a slap bass going on there. I won't go into too much detail about slap bass technique, just that bands like Sly and the Family Stone and Red Hot Chili Peppers really brought that technique to the forefront, at least on bass guitar, 
It had been used on double bass before rock music. Just another aspect of this song, snap, crackling, and popping. As a whole, the Body and Soul album isn't quite as strong as Night and Day, but still some standout songs like this one. No huge analysis, just lots of fun to listen to. After one week of that, we got another new face to the top of the charts. The late, great David Bowie. He spent one week at the top of the summit with his undeniable classic, Heroes. Now, usually when I provide a sample of a song I'm talking about, I'll go from the start and fade out about a minute or a minute and a half later. But this one, I went to the middle of the song, and I have my reasons for that. See, my first exposure to Heroes was the single edit. It's present on Changes Bowie and on most David Bowie compilations, I believe. Now, I get the whole notion of cutting down songs to be single length so they can be played on the radio. But this one was just a hack job. It starts off with the first eight bars of the introduction and then jumps straight to the third verse about how I wish you could swim like dolphins can swim. It cuts out the first two verses, one of which was the first time he said, I will be king and you will be queen in his normal voice. I still regarded this song as a classic at the time, putting it at number one and all. But it wasn't until college that I heard the full version, and it confirmed my slight feeling that something was missing in the version that I knew. The song itself is from Bowie's 1977 album Heroes, the second of three albums that he did in conjunction with Brian Eno, the quote-unquote Berlin Sessions, recorded in Berlin, Germany, and absorbing new influences from that country, more electronic, ambient art rock. This song really is the culmination of all of that. Musically, it was said to be inspired by Velvet Underground, especially I'm Waiting for the Man, just in the plotting tempo and rhythm, and it going back and forth between two chords, in the verses at least, D and G. It's got some mean drones in the verses, and the noted prog rock musician slash curmudgeon Robert Fripp on the guitars. It was originally intended as an instrumental, And it would have been a fine instrumental on the album, but towards the end of the album production, David Bowie finally found lyrics to include, and that would take Heroes to a whole new level. The first three verses are kind of standard love stuff. No, you can be queen, I can be king, because we're lovers, and that's a fact, that is that, and also the lyric about dolphins. But then the music ratches up subtly in the fourth verse, and Bowie repeats the I will be king, you will be queen, line from the first verse, but just passionately screams it and lets you know there's a little more to the song than you might have thought at first. And that's why I thought the single version did not do it justice. It's much like In Light My Fire, 
where Jim Morrison repeats the first verse at the end again with a more pleading tone. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. And it feels more earned in the unedited song because it came after three minutes of organ solos and guitar solos that were cut out of the single version and the second iteration of Love Becoming a Funeral Pyre. Same with Heroes. You need to hear the whole song to get the full emotional impact of that verse. And the crowning glory is the final verse where we find out why nothing can keep us together. It's because they're two lovers separated by the Berlin Wall. That was inspired by David Bowie seeing his producer, Tony Visconti, share a kiss with his girlfriend by the wall, not on opposite sides. Hearing Bowie set up that scene where guns are raining over their heads while the two lovers kiss, and the backing vocals repeating parts of each verse in a more sort of straightforward manner, I thought for years that was Brian Eno on the vocals, but no, it was actually Tony Musconti. It makes for a sock in the gut every time I listen to it. It's one of two Bowie songs that make me a little misty sometimes when I hear it. You'll find out the other Bowie song in three years' time. Although there's no shortage of candidates of my favorite David Bowie song, a couple more you'll be hearing later on. I'll take the conventional route and call this my favorite Bowie song of all time. And before I move on... Take a listen to that Moby song from 2002, We Are All Made of Stars. That's kind of how I found out about Heroes in the first place. That song is very much inspired by Heroes. It topped out at number three in May, right behind The Who and Edwin Collins. It was a strong week that week, let me tell you. Anyway, rest in peace, David Bowie. We all can be heroes. Just for one day. Our final number one of quarter three, 2002. It's Sticky Fingers era Rolling Stones. Two weeks of number one with Can't You Hear Me Knockin' slash Bitch. And here's a sample of the first song. Turns out that Who's Next wasn't the only seminal release by a seminal band in 1971. The Rolling Stones jumped into the fray with Sticky Fingers. This was the first album released on their new label, Rolling Stones label, and to commemorate that, they released an album that pushed even more boundaries than past releases. They also had control of the cover art for the first time, so, so you got that famous album cover, The Shot of a Dude's Crotch. And on first vinyl releases, an actual zipper. And when you unzipped it, you saw some undies. Thanks, Andy Warhol. That freedom to be taboo as you want was reflected in the songs as well. Not so much in either of these songs. First one I'll be talking about is bitch. Despite the title, the word bitch is mostly used in the whole, oh man, that was a bitch, like that was a pain. Not really talking about a woman, I don't think. 
It's a pretty standard riff rocker in the best Rolling Stones tradition. Great little riff by Keith Richards, echoed by the horn section, doubling up on that riff later on in the song. I think that was a new wrinkle to songs like that. It was the B-side to their Mega Smash Brown Sugar, which in 2020 is very, very hard to defend. The Stones had straddled the line between decent taste and misogyny, but the lyrics in Brown Sugar throw it way over the edge. And as such, great music and riff and all, I don't think Brown Sugar will be sticking around too long on the rock radio in nowadays times. Bitch is fun, but Can't You Hear Me Knockin' is the best song on the album. It's almost like two songs in one. The first two and a half minutes are a really cool groove that has riffs for days. Starts off with the signature riff that repeats several times, then the second riff that introduces the verses and plays over and over until the chorus where it turns out the chorus mimics the main riff. It's the tune of, can't you hear me knocking? And naturally you hear percussion like knocking after that. I'm quite a sucker for that. And then part two kicks in, about two and a half minutes in, and it's four minutes of the Stones and their guest musicians just jamming. They didn't know the playback was still rolling, and they just kept on vamping and jamming, with Bobby Keys throwing in some saxophone parts, Mick Taylor with one of his legendary guitar solos. All pure accident. According to Keith Richards, they thought that there was just going to be a fade-out in the song proper, and just kept on going. That dispelled the myth that I and others had over the years that it was a Santana-inspired passage because it was sort of a Latin groove and Mick Taylor was playing not unlike Carlos Santana's guitar style. But that wasn't the case. The Stones were just locked in a jam. And all these years later, we all thank the engineer or whoever for keeping it on the playback and convincing the band to keep it on the song. It was that kind of happy accident that turned a great song even greater. Now let's just replace Brown Sugar for this one for popular memory going forward, and our work here will be done. Let's wrap things up with a few honorable mentions. We got quite a few whoppers at number two this time out. Billy Idol's Rebel Yell came close to number one, but needed Mao 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 to knock off Bob Dylan, and he couldn't quite do that. Likewise, just behind All Over You for a week was Bruce Springsteen's very good 9-11 tribute, The Rising. Maybe it missed out number one because the la-la-la-la-la-la-la part sounded too close to the theme of The Daily Show. But who knows. The same week that Work for Love by Ministry was number one, peaking at number five was another early work from a seminal 90s band, We Care A Lot by Faith No More. Meanwhile, behind Bargain's two-week run, we had several songs from Who's Next right behind it. Baba O'Reilly slash Behind Blue Eyes was number two. And the song I'm going to end this episode with, John Entwistle's Fun Lament, My Wife, was at number three. Finally, at number two behind Can't You Hear Me Knockin' Slash Bitch was Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil. My buddy Steve of In My Room blog at Instagram has a very special relationship to this song, It was one of his first loves musically, having heard it at age five. So, Steve, if you're out there, bummer that Beds Are Burning couldn't quite hit number one, but hopefully you're okay with what kept it at number two. On that personal note, that'll wrap up this week's episode of Music Is My Radar. Join me next week as I close out 2002 with number ones dominated by a certain group. As always, thank you so much for listening, and stay safe out there.
Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.